HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Le Creuset, made in France since 1925. The first and finest enameled cast iron cookware and a favorite for generations. For more information, visit lecruset.com. That's L-E-C-R-E-U-S-E-T dot com. I'm HRN's Executive Director, Katie Mosman-Wadler, with a preview of this week's episode of Meat and Three, our weekly food news roundup. This week, we're looking at the way labels shape our perspectives on food. I know you're not supposed to judge a book by its cover, but is it acceptable to judge a wine by its label? There are some labels that I'd say are so bad, they're good. As long as your paperwork's in good shape, you'll get a grass-fed label. Tune in to this week's Meat and 3 on Heritage Radio Network. That's meat plus sign T-H-R-E-E. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, this is Lisa Held coming to you live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, and you're listening to The Farm Report, a Heritage Radio Network show about the people, processes, and policies that shape how food is produced today. So today I'm here with Dan Wilson. Uh, He's a farmer and co-owner of Hicks Orchard in upstate New York and a cider maker from Slyboro Cider House. Dan, thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Lisa. It's great to be here. Um, so we've got a lot of um, shows on Heritage Radio this week hitting cider as a topic because it's uh, Cider Week here in New York City. Um, but I'm excited to have you because you are really involved in the orchard and, you know, the growing of the fruit that turns into cider, right? And then also the processing of <laughs> um, and making of the cider. Um, and... You don't know this, but I am so excited for this conversation because I grew up in the Hudson Valley and apple orchards are definitely my happy place. Um, And cider. Mine too. Yeah. (laughs) Cider, I think, is like in my blood. I love it so much. Um, So um, let's start out with the orchard. Hmm. Um, So I understand that Hicks Orchard has been around for more than a century. Is that right? Yeah, uh, as far as I, I know, the first trees were planted in the 1870s, 1880s. Wow. Uh, we still have some trees on the farm that are 100 years old, and but we're planting a lot of new and you know high high density small trees too. So we have the, the, the full gamut, uh, some very old traditional varieties, and uh, and some new varieties, and we're you know more and more planting um, uh, varieties just for cider. 
Uh, Hicks Orchard is uh, has a distinction of being the oldest pick-your-own-orchard in, in New York State. Hmm. Uh, so we've been inviting people to the farm since 1905. And, uh, 1905. 1905. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> I heard some great stories of... Uh, uh, the uh, the reason that they started to do that was um, that uh, 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 the local families that would uh, build, build baskets for their cherry harvest had an argument with the family, and they weren't able to get packaging supplies. So, in a, maybe a fit of inspiration, they decided to bring let people come into the orchard and pick their own, huh. and that started a tradition. Uh, over the years, uh, Hicks Orchard was also a dairy farm, and they phased the dairy portion of the business out in the 1950s and uh, and gradually turned more of their, uh, their 90 acres of apples to pick your own. Um, hmm. So when my family bought the farm in 1974, uh, it had a very robust um, you know, pick your own business and uh, we would you know, see thousands of cars uh, on a weekend day uh, just to, to come in and get their own fruit. Yeah. Well, and you say your family bought the orchard in 1974. Um, your family as in your parents or? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So did you grow up on the I I, I started high school in, in, the, in the local town, Granville, uh, having grown up in Midwest and uh, spent some time in Connecticut before, uh, before this. My father was a, a food scientist, worked for General Foods, um, kind of took an early retirement, reinventing his life and moving to an orchard. Uh, my mom had grown up on a dairy farm, and she said, I will follow you on this fantasy as long as there are no cows involved. <laughs> She'd already done that. And uh, so this is where we landed. It was a, a great fit. Uh, it took me a long time to decide to you know, come back to the farm and, and, uh, and uh, take it over for myself um, mm. and ran it with, uh, with my wife for 20 years and, and uh, uh, all the way up until recently. And we started making cider in the early 2000s, okay. partly because it was a, um, uh, you know, running a pick-your-own farm where our season is so highly condensed around the harvest. Right. And so we not only have to have a really great growing season, we have to have a really nice weather during the harvest. And, you know, 85 to 90 percent of our income would come on six weekends in a year. That's crazy. Which is kind of insane. Yeah. Uh, on top of all the risks and all the variables that you, you know, you're out of control with uh, for uh, for a farm, cider seemed to make some sense. Uh, so in terms of the business structure of the farm, it was, it was uh, important because it gave us something that we could make from uh, from our fruit and sometimes, you know, for less than perfect fruit uh, in, uh, in, in uh, a product that we could market year round mm. and we could market off the farm and also kind of helped us to kind of jump into food and cuisine and culture and history and, and, uh, and give us some exposure to uh, lots of different uh, venues and demographics. Uh, so business wise, it made a lot of sense. Uh, we're also very interested in the creative aspect of cider because mm. it, you know you're taking this this uh, great raw product and you are there's creativity involved in you know in the in the making of the cider, uh, the choices you make, how it's blended, how it's presented. Um, um, yeah, at the time we started getting into cider, it uh, even though cider had a great history in, in the United States, it had basically disappeared right. with prohibition. I mean, you may have heard that story. Uh, and uh, so modern cider is only only about 20 years old. So we're still trying to figure out where cider fits in the spectrum of everything you have uh, available to drink uh, mm -hmm. for different occasions. But um, uh, so there's the, this uh, this kind of uh, feeling things out as we go, where, where cider fits, how to present it, whether it's really should be kind of uh, 
presented as a wine mm -hmm. or some kind of an alternative to beer uh, or both those things or maybe something beyond that too. Right. So, uh, so the creativity, uh, uh, the, the whole aspect of, uh, of how we put the cider together, how we you know, tie it in with, uh, with other people who are interested in, in, in food and drink. Uh, those are really kind of exciting things. And so it kind of opened up our world in a lot of ways. Right. Well, and when you talk about that moment when you decided to start making cider and um, kind of uh, add that to what the orchard was, was doing, um, how much of a transition was that for the actual farm operation? Because um, the apples are different, right? Mm. They're completely different varieties that you grow for cider. Is that right? Well, yes. Yes and no. Mm. And uh, uh so how cider exists in the world right now in the United States is uh, the vast majority of cider is either made on the largest scale from apple juice concentrate. Mm. Uh, on the smaller regional scale or the mid-sized companies, they're using fresh apple juice that's locally sourced, which is great. But uh, almost invariably, it's the surplus of the fresh apple industry. Oh, okay. So there are a lot of eating apples that are, you know, have no other home, and they end up as, as juice, and people are making cider out of them, and it's, you know, perfectly legitimate. The, the, uh, but the, the, I wouldn't say it's a problem, but a, uh, a characteristic of a lot of those ciders is that they're really good as eating apples, but they don't really confer a lot of flavor to, mm. uh, to a hard cider. Uh, so that's where you kind of dig a little bit deeper and you find uh, either great uh, heritage apples uh, from the United States that have a lot more flavor, a little more kind of robust quality. Mm. Or we kind of look at other cider cultures uh, from England or France or Spain where they've been continuously growing and developing cider fruit for centuries, basically. So then uh, as we get access to these apple varieties, we're putting these in the ground. And this is where you get a lot of uh, interesting complexity with cider uh, that's inherently built around the qualities of the apples. So, mm -hmm. in in some ways, to answer your question, then uh, you know, cider is uh, uh, we look for apples that have a great you know natural flavor that can that, that translates well into a hard cider. Mm -hmm. uh, not all the cider that's out there is made that way. Um, and but again, the industry is young. We're still trying to, uh, to to learn as we go to try to educate you know the, the customers so that uh, to encourage them to kind of explore cider and uh, to find what they like and, right. and hopefully really become intrigued by you know these unique qualities of cider that really you can't find in a wine or a beer. Yeah. So are you right now growing all the apples that you use for your cider? Nearly all the apples. Uh, we do yeah. have some other local sources of fruit, um, and uh, but you know the the really highly unusual varieties uh, the, of classes of apples called bitter sweet or bitter sharp apples. Those are very rare. And uh, and while my trees are young and they're uh, we're a year or so away from uh, from production on those, um, I do find some others from you know from local or regional farms. Um, how long does it take for a tree to start producing apples? Like you said, they're mm. young and they're not producing yet. How long is that process from when you plant it, them? You know, it's a long term. Um, so basically, if you put a tree in the ground and we're growing these as you know as young trees and not from seeds, okay. because we want true varieties, we have to uh, you know graft onto a rootstock mm. to get uh, a variety to um, to be predictable. Um, so once we plant a tree, it really depends on the orchard that you design because uh, you can choose trees that will uh, have uh, a rootstock that will support a tree of a certain size. Okay. So right now, most growers are planting um, 
uh, dwarf or semi-dwarf trees. And, and what causes the dwarfing is the rootstock, you know, because it will only grow to a certain point. It will only, uh, you know, provide the, the nutrient system for a tree of a certain size. Mm. So uh, a semi-dwarf tree can grow up to, you know, 20 feet tall probably. Uh, and uh, it will take maybe five or 10 years for that to come into full production. Wow. A very small tree is basically like growing the branch instead of growing the whole tree. You're not focused on growing the structure of the tree. You're trying to get it into production as soon as possible. And with good management, you can do that in three or four years. Okay. But that's uh, still a pretty long time before yeah, you can... Yeah. And, and to back up from that too, is uh, when we order trees from a nursery, they don't have a big you know, backlog of trees that you mm. can just say, I want four of these or you know, 500 of these. You have to, uh, 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 to build that order two years in advance. Wow. So, uh, so you, uh, you, know, you uh, contract with a, with a nursery uh, and uh, you know, design the trees you want. The rootstock you know, uh, matched to uh, the cyan wood that you need, uh, assuming they, they can get that for some of these unusual varieties. And, uh, and then you wait two years and you do the, all the ground prep and, uh, and then put the trees in the ground another three years or so, mm-hmm. uh, maybe a little longer depending on you know, seasonal variability. And then you have a tree that will produce fruit. Um, as we make cider, we're kind of learning that, you know, as with wine grapes, it takes a little while for the tree to settle down into, into you know, full quality apples that will, you know, be the, you know, the best for cider. So hmm. maybe even another couple of years beyond that before you get the, the best cider from those apples. Interesting. Um, what about the landscape? Because I, I mean, I think being in New York, we assume that... Um, it's a great place for apples, right? We, yeah. we have a lot of apples, um, lots of orchards. Um, but I'm curious if the climate, um, like how it affects what you can grow and, and the kinds of apples that you grow. Um, and I've also heard, and this is sort of like through the grapevine, um, <laughs> we're talking about cider, I shouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> um, Easy chapter four. Yeah, <laughs> sorry. But... Um, you know, I've heard that it's actually pretty tricky um, to um, grow, to maintain orchards without, um, in terms of pest management in mm. New York, that it yeah. can be really tricky. It can be really tricky. Can you talk a little bit about like New York as a mm. um, climate and how it affects your growing? Uh, growing organically is really tough, mm. uh, regardless of the crop. Uh, the, one of the problems with growing apples organically in New York State is we not only have a great climate for growing apples. We have a great climate for many different kinds of insects that right. like apples, and and by probably more importantly, diseases. There's a, the common, most common disease for apples is a fungal disease called scab, mm. and it literally kind of produces you know, scab uh, lesions on the skin. If there's they're too bad, then it kind of deforms the fruit as it grows, and they'll crack and kind of be unusable. Uh, different varieties of apples have different uh, susceptibility or resistance to scab, too. Uh, the, the, uh, the majority of organic apples that are consumed in, in the country are grown in dry climates, like mm. Washington State, where they don't have the fungal you know, disease pressure right. that we have. Uh, so that makes it challenging. Uh, it's not impossible to grow apples organically in, in New York State. It just adds a lot to, uh, you know, to the... Um, you know the, the complex set of issues you have to deal with to um, to grow good fruit. We are uh, an IPM grower, you know, integrated pest management. We uh, we work closely with Cornell, with uh, different organizations uh, nationally and internationally to 
uh, to design models for us to uh, have more uh, predictability for how insects and uh, and diseases uh, pressures build during a season. Mm. Uh, we do a lot of on-farm monitoring, and uh, and that kind of gets us to a point where we. Uh, can spray the softest materials uh, it, with the least frequency and the lowest, uh, you know, uh, active right. um, uh, um, rates that will give us the, the benefit of, uh, of those products, um, and uh, and we really try to stay on top of that so that we can uh, have a minimal spray spray program. Right. Um, so yeah, that's yeah. It, it, it is challenging, and uh, and we work you know really hard to. Uh, uh, to you know, to keep that to a minimum. Every year is a little different. Uh, the the um, different things come up. There are new invasive species of insects that we have to kind of now pay attention to. Also, so it's a changing landscape always. Right. Um, uh, but one of the reasons that we're planting small trees, these high density orchards, is that they require a lot less input. Uh, mm. You know, the, the smaller target of a tree that's only you know will grow to be two and a half feet wide and maybe ten feet tall. Uh, it, it's uh, it, you have to use a lot less material in terms of pesticides and and fertilizers and other things too. Interesting. Hmm. Another thing I just thought of in terms of just like food system issues and and orchards is it occurs to me that if you're making cider um, from apples, you there might be a lot less waste in terms of apples. <laughs> like, is that is that something that you have come across? A lot of people are talking about food waste right now, and mm. I would imagine like when you harvest apples for cider, you can kind of use them all, right? Whereas, well, we're, we're careful. Be, I mean, yeah, yeah. The, the, uh, it does give us a lot more range than what we can use. Mm. Um, and uh, for example, the use of apples that fall on the ground, we're not able to use those for a fresh cider. Mm. Uh, we you know we have a food safety program for our fresh cider business. Uh, the act of fermenting a product uh, with the production of alcohol is is actually um, uh, it's a sanitizing product for or a process for for the fresh juice. That's one right. of the reasons the the pioneers were uh, were taught to make hard cider <laughs> yeah, because it was absolutely. safer to drink than the uh, the you know the surface water that most people had access to. Yeah. So uh, uh, by killing E. coli by deactivating you know patchulin, which is a which is a, a natural uh, carcinogen, which is a food safety concern. Uh, that gives us the ability to use fruit that we wouldn't uh, would otherwise not be able to use. We're mm-hmm. still careful to you know to sort the apples, make sure that we're not using anything that's broken open or you know or rotted or anything like that. Partly for that issue, but also just because it uh, produces a lower quality juice. Right. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've asked you lots of questions about the orchard mm-hmm. <laughs> farming. Um, We're going to take a break in a minute, and then when we come back, we're going to talk more about the actual process of making the cider, Mm. and we're going to taste some cider, which I'm really excited about. Um, So we're just going to take a short break, and we'll be right back. was brought to you by Le Creuset, the first to pioneer colorful enamel cookware over 90 years ago. They've been a favorite for generations through the meals and memories the cookware creates and the style it expresses. My name is Kat Johnson. I'm the communications director at Heritage Radio Network. When I'm not making food radio, I'm making food 
And my favorite cookware is the 8-quart marine blue Dutch oven that never leaves my stovetop. Before we got our Le Creuset, the cookware we used most often was an antique Griswold cast iron pan. It didn't take long for me to realize how much I'd been missing enamel cast iron in my life. Le Creuset has the superior heat retention of cast iron, but paired with the unparalleled performance and ease of enamel. That means delicious food with easy cleanup. Head to lecreuset.com slash HRN, that's L-E-C-R-E-U-S-E-T dot com slash HRN to see all the new products and amazing holiday gift deals. HRN listeners will get 20% off the new Le Creuset cookbook with the code HRN. All right, this is Lisa Held. We're back. You're listening to The Farm Report on Heritage Radio Network. I'm here with Dan Wilson from Slyboro Cider and Hicks Orchard, and we're talking about cider. And I think um, the best way to start off this second part is let's drink some. How about that? Let's drink some cider. (laughs) Um, So while you're opening them, can you tell us what you brought? Sure. Uh, We were talking about unusual apple varieties. This first one is a Kingston Black, which is a it's uh, unusual for a couple of reasons. One is that it's a still cider. Uh, most ciders that are in the market are sparkling. Okay. This is a still cider. We wanted to kind of create a cider that um, really you know explored this uh, great apple. Uh, but also we wanted to make a cider that, that uh, wine drinkers could understand. Um, this is, I think, a little more Savory and and it's in quality. There's uh, there's there's a fair amount of tannin in the Kingston Black Apple. Uh, there's a, but there's still a lot of fruit in the flavor. It's almost like fruit without the sweetness of fruit in some ways. But a kind of a nice uh, darker earthy kind of background to it. Uh, last night at an event, we were pairing these with dumplings, and it was uh, huh. <laughs> a, 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 like Asian slightly spiced dumplings, and they were just it was a great great. Uh, um, you know, exploration of uh, how cider pairs really well, nicely with umami and, and kind of those um, uh, those kind of chewier qualities. It's, yeah, it's yeah. I mean, it really has a lot of wine qualities, mm. right? Like that. It's it's really interesting. Um, it's it's delicious. Um, and so you you talk a, a little bit. I, I've read a little bit about you know your approach to cider making. Um, you describe on your website, you say you go back to the lost craft of traditional hmm. American ciders. Um, can you talk a little bit about what that means? Like, what's your process and how does it compare to how other ciders are made? Uh, I think we, we were taught by other cider makers that we were in, uh, in collaboration with early on that cider, you know, rightfully is, is a winemaking process. And we're mm. basically making white wine with apples. And uh, we're using the same processes, the same, uh, in some cases, the same yeast, the same equipment as a, as a white wine uh, winery. Um, we're also, as apple growers, we're dealing with kind of a, a, um, a sense of vintage. So it's not only not just the variety, but uh, which varieties produce certain, you know, uh, higher quality sugar or, or acidity in a particular year, and how that will translate into the cider that comes out of that. Yeah, on our farm, one of the, th- the first things we did uh, when I developed my little mad scientist room, as my wife called it, <laughs> with all the bubbling carboys uh, of, of cider, was uh, we tested for ourselves this general notion that not all apples produce good cider. Mm. Uh, we want, didn't want to take it uh, on face value. We wanted to kind of see that ourselves. 
And in some ways, in our exploring cider in the region, we found that uh, some of those, um, uh, you know, the common wisdom is not always true. For example, uh, in our experiments, uh, a common eating variety, kind of a classic American variety, Cortland, mm. we could not get a very good cider from that. It was huh. always pretty I insipid. love Cortland. Cortlands are so great to eat. <laughs> But if you go up to Canada, there are some really uh, fabulous ciders made from Cortland. So, huh. you know, it gives you a little sense that, you know, it's not just uh, this blanket uh, uh, truth that uh, certain apple varieties will not produce good cider. It's It, it could get to, uh, and I'm kind of looking forward to where we may be in a couple of decades, where we really get a sense of um, not just which apples make good cider, but which regions grow certain apples mm. more with more character or, or kind of regional quality. Right. Uh, we're not there yet. So, uh, you know, we did this experimenting we, with all the apple varieties we could, we could uh, uh, get our hands on, yeah. uh, what we could grow, what we can have access to. And, and kind of reinvent that, that, that palette for ourselves. And so that was kind of the, re, or the uh, rediscovering the lost tradition of cider. Yeah. Uh, and that's, I think, a little different than the ciders that are, you know, uh, mostly out in the world. And um, uh, that are, um, uh, you know, a little sweeter and fruitier and, and friendly um, uh, but, and approachable. But um, uh, we were hoping for something with a little more character that also was, really grew naturally out of our farm and our interest. Well, and that parallel with winemaking is is so interesting. Um, we were just in Virginia um, with Heritage Radio this past weekend, and I did um, some tastings with Virginia winemakers, and um, they're growing, for instance, they're growing a lot of um, Bordeaux variety grapes in Virginia and making yeah. these Bordeaux-style wines that are amazing, but they don't taste, you know, the, the Bordeaux from Virginia doesn't taste like a Bordeaux from, you know, from France. And that's, isn't that a great thing? And it's a great thing. I mean, they were amazing wines and you don't expect it to that, that sort of makes sense. Right. And so that idea that a Cortland apple, you know, cider made from a Cortland in Canada wouldn't necessarily be the same as one in New York. It Mm -hmm. it does make intuitive sense when you think of it that Mm -hmm. way. Right. But But we just haven't really thought about cider that way before. No, we haven't. And, yeah. and of course, every growing season is different. Uh, on hot, dry summers, especially late in the summer, the apples will be a little smaller, but the sugars will be condensed and higher. And so that we kind of look to that to, uh, to, to again, translate into certain qualities of the, the hard cider that those will make. It's almost like with a vineyard, how uh, when they're in, again grown in a drying climate, and they, they manage their drought. You know they'll they'll irrigate trees or vines uh, early in the season, but let let them get uh, stressed toward the end of the growing season, so Mm. that it it kind of uh, helps to uh, to uh, you know build that kind of quality in in the in the wine grapes. same is true with apples. So, you know, they are kind of, uh, it's a, the living part of the process, which is uh, really interesting. Mm-hmm. And so every year is different. Uh, and, and we're trying to learn uh, and kind of deepen that knowledge base each year. Right. What are your, um, some of your favorite varieties of New York apples to mm. make cider with? Yeah, well, we, you were talking about how uh, New York State is a great um, apple-growing state. And and one of the reasons it's different from other apple-growing regions is uh, we, we have a lot of older traditional orchards. So we do have access mm-hmm. to a wider variety of, of um, varieties uh, <laughs> than, you know, Washington State, which is, you know, the real giant in the country for growing apples. Um, they have a, this monstrous pipeline of juice that many cider makers out there use, but so... 
in my opinion, most of the cider there tastes very similar. <laughs> uh, there are some really good cider makers out there, so I, I yeah. certainly won't disparage <laughs> too I'll much. I'll have to have a, but, a, yeah, well, someone we'll, from there on to. <laughs> <laughs> I can recommend some too, so I'll, I'll tell you a good starting place. But um, uh, so New York City has great traditional varieties. Actually, some some really good cider varieties that are inherent to New York State. Uh, like golden russet, mm. uh, really nice eating apple, uh, not too common, but you find them in orchards uh, in different places. Uh, this year, our golden russet produced a really high sugar uh, juice. It has a really beautiful acidity. There's some really nice um, kind of spiciness that comes through in the hard cider. So that's just kind of a, a that's a, a natural another um, cider variety, which is uh, you see uh, again from New York State is Asapa Spitzenberg. It's kind of a high acid apple, which uh, also is kind of a nice component to a cider. Hmm. And then in modern times, there's a, a variety called Liberty, which was uh, developed out of the Geneva Apple Breeding Program. Uh, and it was uh, it initially introduced as a, a variety that was naturally resistant to scab, the disease we talked about hmm. earlier. And so it was thought that that would be, you know, kind of find its place in the market as a, as a low spray variety. Um, we planted an acre of those and uh, didn't find too many of those customers, but then found that they make a really nice cider. Huh. So, they, you know, uh, looking back in history, but also in, in, in modern times, there's, um, there are more and more apples that we're looking for for certain flavor notes or certain qualities. Uh, the Geneva, in, uh, associated with Cornell out in western New York, uh, there's an apple breeding program that for years and years has been focused on uh, developing the new hot you know, uh, breed of apple uh, for <laughs> the fresh market. But right. we have talked to the, uh, the breeders there and we say, you know, there are these orchards full of apples that you're kind of bypassing because they don't fit that uh. bill. But now, you know, within the you know, last several years, we've been experimenting with those as, uh, you know, with the, for the potential for hard cider. Right. So, you know, we're working on uh, developing new, new varieties that will not, you know, just uh, give the uh, good quality to cider, but some of these uh, traditional cider varieties are hard to grow. Uh. They can be heavily biennial or have, you know, uh, very prone to certain diseases. So if we can meet the happy medium of really interesting cider flavors from these varieties in an easy-to-grow apple that's annually bearing and, uh, uh, and easy to manage, and maybe has some disease resistance. That would be, you know, that would be kind of a, a triple play. So yeah. the, the search continues. Um, there are a lot of apple orchard or cider makers that are using feral apples, that are using wild apples in their fruit or in their ciders. It's a different model, but it uh, it allows them to, you know, find fruit that does have a lot of, uh, you know, great flavor characteristics. Mm. That, um and make use of some fruit that you know would otherwise go to waste. Right. Yeah, that's really yeah. cool. Um, should we try the other one? Okay, let's do um, that. Pop it open. <laughs> this one is uh, called La Santerre, and um, it is a a semi-sweet sparkling cider that oh, didn't get a much of a pop. <laughs> I thought Sorry. it was going to be a nice. It's going to be really dramatic. <laughs> so this is uh, this is uh, a primary part of the base cider is golden russet. And uh, it has a certain um, kind of nice spiciness to that flavor. Um, uh, we do ferment some Macintosh, which is not norm normally thought of as a good cider apple. But we find that a fully ripe Macintosh that is fermented, it, the interesting um, uh, 
single note that it contributes is a really nice kind of floral quality mm. in the nose. Uh, so for that reason, there's uh, some Macintosh. And, but the, and there's some bittersweet because we wanted a little bit of kind of that uh, structure and the back end of the flavor. Mm. And then before bottling, we had ice cider, which is, uh, uh, it's a different process. It's like an ice wine made from apples. Wow. And uh, <laughs> so that's a process that was developed in Quebec. Uh, as a kind of an adjunct to the ice cider industry that they, they built there. Rather than letting the fruit freeze on the trees, though, we take fresh cider pressed in the middle of winter. During, you know, we, we predict when, or we look at the weather map and find the coldest part of the winter, press a bunch of cider, put it outside to let it freeze naturally. Oh, you let the cider itself freeze. Yeah, we let <laughs> the cider freeze. And then as it starts to thaw, it's the high sugar portion of the, the juice that drains away first, leaving most of the volume behind as kind of a flavorless ice. Huh. So it, it turns out to be a super high sugar, high flavor must, basically. And then we partially ferment that. We uh, ferment it as slowly as we can. Uh, and then uh, cold stabilize the tanks, uh, refreezing the, the, the wine before it's finished uh, to retain a lot of the natural sweetness. Hmm. So we contribute uh, a good portion of that to the La Santerre to give it um, uh, a lot of the great flavor notes, um, some kind of baked apple quality uh, and uh, some kind of nice melon things, almost a, a little bit of pineapple that comes through with that. Mm. Uh, and then you know, all the sweetness there is, is to kind of naturally uh, from the apple. Mm, it's really delicious. Um, and so that that's really interesting. I mean, that's like mm. a very a complex. It <laughs> process. is complex, yes. Um, and and it's, <laughs> we, we put a so much <laughs> into these sides. It's crazy. Um, and there's a, there's so. It's a sort of a blend, I guess, you know, of different apples mm. in that one. Are most of the ciders that you make, do they involve lots of different apples in one cider? Well, yeah. The way we normally work on uh, at Slyboro is uh, we make single variety batches of cider mm. as much as we can. Uh, there are some apples that are they need uh, to be blended before uh, fermenting because they're maybe not very acidic. And to have a safe, you know, predictable fermentation, we want to make sure we have... Uh, the acidity within a certain range. Okay. Uh, but uh, for the most part, we like to, to ferment uh, single variety batches to total dryness. And then we blend at the, at the end uh, to, to kind of build the different flavors we're looking for. Uh, beyond that, we're kind of starting to work now with some barrel aging of ciders. Um, and from the beginning also, we, we wanted to, to present uh, ciders that kind of expressed a full range of flavors just to demonstrate what you could do with apples. That's why we have ciders that are dry and still on the one end of the spectrum mm. through several sparkling ciders and then up to um, uh, ice cider, which is kind of the other extreme just mm. to kind of, uh, to, you know, explore and experiment, but also to uh, give us more of a palate to work with in building ciders. Yeah. Um, it's really amazing <laughs> all the all the different things that you're doing with the with apples. <laughs> yeah. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the business side. Um, mm. I I mean it's just really interesting how many um, orchards have started making cider in New York, right? Yeah. Um, well, in New York, it actually has the highest number of cideries of any state in wow. the country. We're I think we're above ninety now. Wow. Mm. Um, and so you, people can still come to Slybro, right, and, and um, taste the cider and drink it, like, at Hicks Orchard. Is yeah. that right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and then um, I know you're selling online on Cider and Love as well. Yeah. 
Um, so um, tell me about that, like the economic model. Um, is it important that you get this cider out to more people? Um, of course. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, right, like, did did getting on Cider and Love change your business, and that you're now able to get it out to a wider audience? Are you are you selling it in stores as well? Like, how how did all that come about? Yeah, our our distribution kind of um, grew organically from uh, operating a tasting room and doing some self distribution in our neighborhood mm. to getting to the point where we were confident that we could. Um, uh, to, to expand to you know supply other uh, other markets. Okay. And so now we have a distributor that's kind of trying to, to uh, get us good placements through New York State. Um, and it's a kind of a work in progress, um, uh, partly because distributors tend to be, be either beer distributors or wine distributors. Mm. And when cider is kind of hovers between the two, and we present ciders you know, to kind of uh, uh, live in both markets. It's it's uh, to trying to find the right fit to educate the salespeople to you know to to know how to present things in different venues is is kind of uh, key. Cider and love has been um, a great step forward for us because um, also I guess because of the the, the rules and regulations uh, we cannot ship uh, or we can't send by UPS uh, cider if it's under seven percent alcohol. If Just it's a, under, yeah, it is. Uh, you can send wine over the over, okay. uh, you know, by common carrier, and not the post office. But uh, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> it's it's really complicated. Wow. I'll try to avoid getting okay. in the weeds here. Uh, Cider and love uh, turn, uh, was a, a kind of a brilliant idea to uh, to create a central marketplace for wine style ciders. Mm. So heritage ciders that are uh, mostly, or I think in. Uh, uh, in, in every case, built around something that's really interesting, unique quality of apples from different farms, and uh, it, it, it's it, it's only the marketplace. So ciderandlove.com is the mm-hmm. is the website, and uh, it's kind of a curated uh, selection of small, uh, mostly farm based cideries around the country. Uh, that are presenting cider as a, as a form of, of wine, and uh, so you order through the website, but the individual farm fulfills the order, so mm. you're actually buying directly from the farmer, and uh, uh, or the orchardist, as we right, <laughs> <laughs> or the cider maker, yeah, uh, and uh, and it's kind of important because we are trying to build this market. We're trying to to uh, to create a venue for people to uh, experiment and explore with with cider. Uh, they're not everywhere, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I think in an ideal world, you would go into any wine shop, and there would be a cider section, you know, not just a couple bottles here and there, but a, a, you know, a, a, a well-developed and curated section. Uh, and uh, in some in some areas, we're getting to that place, and and wine buyers are, st- are starting to understand that. Wine writers are starting to understand that, and and uh, hold cider to the same kind of level of, of standards that they do with with wine. And I think that's that's totally legitimate. Yeah, and it's only through doing that kind of work that we really start to. Um, uh, uh, to uh, build a market for ciders that really kind of command that that respect. Right. Well, and going back to the idea of the the farm based cideries, and you know, you were talking earlier about how um, when you were when you were just a U pick orchard, mm-hmm. you were dependent on this like six weeks of income, right? Yeah. Um, and I know it's it's just I mean, as a small farm of any kind, it's really hard to make. E- you know, Mm. the economics work, right? (laughs) And, you know, you're doing it with an orchard where this is like really short season. Um, And, 
you, then you got into cider making and you're growing it through all these different platforms. I, I mean, from your experience, do you think, is it a really, is making cider a really good path for like farms, orchards? <laughs> <laughs> We're really going back and forth between these <laughs> farm and orchard uh, terms. Is it a good path for, for, um, the owners of orchards who are like struggling um, yeah. with the economics to, to start making cider as a way to kind of make. So I, I think the, we've been doing you pick for a long time mm. and the re- and we're still a small, you know, family scale farm. And the only reason that we've been able to stay that way is because we've been able to, uh, to, to be the, our own middle person. Mm. Uh, we, you know, we have the direct connection to the final consumer of that product. So, whereas most apple growers uh, that are in the commercial right. scale, uh, they they are reliant on brokers to sell their fruit, and they and, and they have to sell at a kind of a lower wholesale cost. Um, so anybody, any farmer that's interested in getting into cider, I think has to have the same approach. That it is not just making the cider and putting it in the world. It is, uh, especially working on a small scale, it's developing some kind of a retail, a way of retailing the cider to get the full value of that, in, you know, the investment in you have in each bottle. Uh, because that's where, you know, working on a small scale makes sense. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's, you know, doing farmer's markets, it's having relationships with, uh, with, you know, uh, restaurants and bars to, to, to kind of help you to build a business and especially working in your own neighborhood because it's where you, that, that's where I think where you get the best, um, uh, the, 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 the best possibility. When we first started, we were working with models, economic models for how to do a, a small yeah. winery. And, uh, the, uh, the, the Cornell put out a model for small wineries a long time ago. I spent a lot of time pouring over that. And there was the, uh, getting up to like a 5,000 case a year, uh, point price point where you're retailing everything through your tasting room was a very profitable model. The next st- scale up, uh, assuming you've kind of, uh, saturated that market is to get to 20,000 cases. Because then you have to uh, you have to not only build more infrastructure, you're working with distributors mm-hmm. to uh, and selling at a lower uh, price point. So it's a big jump between five thousand and twenty thousand right. before you start to increase your profitability. Huh. So um, uh, I guess that that's a little long-winded way to say uh, <laughs> yes, it can work for farms, uh, it can work for cider makers, but uh, start small and really work on building the relationships, being a marketer as much as a cider maker. Mm. Perfect. Um, so before we go, what's next for Slybro? Well, uh, <laughs> we're waiting for these great trees to come in full production uh-huh. uh, and, and scaling up. Uh, we are launching a line of canned ciders, and oh. that's a different story, <laughs> uh, with some uh, some uh, twists and turns. Um, uh, for Slyboro, we're coming out uh, with a, a bottle-conditioned dry version of the La Santerre, which is uh, phenomenal. Mm. Um, and as I said, we're doing some barrel-aged ciders, uh, which also are, are going to kind of bring it up a notch. A notch. Um, and uh, as we, you know, have more access to fruit and uh, and time to work with them, um, uh, we'll just kind of continue to to uh, try to put out uh, really unique ciders. Amazing. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Lisa. Appreciate it. Thank you all so much for listening to the Farm Report on Heritage Radio Network. 
If you enjoyed the conversation, please subscribe to the podcast, rate, and share it. We'll see you next Wednesday. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.